Just a couple of announcements. This evening starts Vacation Bible School. Six o'clock is when the program starts. So if you need to bring your child in and register him or her, you need to come early, earlier than six for that. Uh, that will run through Thursday, six o'clock to eight thirty each evening. And also, uh, men, two weekends from this one, Friday night and Saturday, is that Purity Seminar. I encourage you to register for that at the Resource Center. Uh, $10 for the materials. And then family camp is August 10 through 13. There are brochures for family camp out on the uh, information table. We just have a table today because the desk got moved for VBS props. The desk will be back next week. So think about uh, family camp. We'll have an informational meeting about family camp between services next Sunday. So if you haven't registered but you're thinking about it, that might help get you over the uh, hump. We'll give you some information about what we plan to do. Today, we're starting a series on the holiness movement. If you receive that paperwork, you look up at the top. It says the holiness movement, the good, the bad, and the ugly, part one. Dr. Combs is going to be going through that issue, the holiness movement, over the next few weeks. Dr. Combs has done a ton of work over the years on this issue, this movement, and issues related to it. So I know that one of the difficulties with having three or four weeks is trying to pare down all the information as best he can. But he's been working on it for a good while. I'm sure that uh, you will benefit from it, and I've been looking forward to it. So Dr. Combs is going to come with part one. You should have a copy of the notes, and you want to get a copy of these because these are vastly superior to what Pastor Ken passes out. They're superior in two ways. First of all, you've got photographs, and you've got color photographs. So, you know, you want to get a copy of these. We're uh, talking about the holiness movement, and we start on page one with an introduction. Uh, We're talking about the holiness movement, but as I say, we'll be taking a rather broad historical perspective. The holiness movement is just one aspect, but it affects everything else. I should say, if I start coughing, I hope you can kind of forgive me. And and if I cough, that doesn't count against my time. I get to go over, Pastor Ken said. But if I cough, I'll I'll go over here and cough for a while, then come back and we'll try to go again. Uh, As I say here, what is technically called the holiness movement is something that came out of the Methodist church in the middle of the 19th century, that is, in the 1800s, primarily in America, but also in Britain, also in England. And the holiness movement in America was an attempt, as I say here, to preserve, preserve the holiness teachings, the teachings about holiness of John Wesley. Now, if you see John Wesley there, you see his date, 1703 to 1791. He was the founder of Methodism, the founder of the Methodist Church. Now, I'll say a lot about Wesley, especially next week, but I just want to have a kind of a brief introduction here in case you're not familiar, all that familiar with John Wesley. Uh, John Wesley was an Anglican minister. Uh, Anglican means English. And so the Anglican church is the English English church. <clears throat> in the 1500s, there was a reformation in Europe, a Protestant reformation. The universal church was the Roman Catholic church. But the, univer- the Roman Catholic church had been corrupted. And the gospel was sort of lost. And the true gospel was hard to find. And some people broke away. Some men 
like Luther and Calvin, and we'll talk about them, they broke away. They protested, broke away, and formed new churches, uh, reformed churches, uh, congregational churches, Presbyterian churches, uh, Baptist churches, all kinds of different churches, Lutheran churches. And uh, one of the churches that was formed in the 1500s was the Anglican Church, the Church of England. Now, this was actually started by Henry VIII in 1534. He mainly broke away for political and personal reasons, but he started the Church of England, the Anglican Church, which exists today. The Queen, Queen Elizabeth II, is the governor, the supreme governor of the Anglican Church. So England has a state church. In Europe at that time, the, there was no separation of church and state. The idea of separation of church and state is mainly an American idea that came out of the Revolutionary War and so forth. Uh, before the Revolution, for instance, in the colonies, most of the colonies had state churches or colonial churches. I'm from Virginia. And the Anglican Church was the church in Virginia. You couldn't be anything else. If you were a Baptist, you were persecuted. And you had to pay taxes in Virginia to the Anglican Church. So John Wesley grew up in England uh, in the 1700s. His father was an Anglican minister, a clergyman, and he wanted to be an Anglican clergyman. He was very serious about Christianity. He went to Oxford University, the premier university, and there he studied and so forth. And he was very concerned about holiness. He wanted to please God. He, he wanted to uh, be a good Christian. And so when I chose that title, that subtitle, The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly, uh, it's because there's some good things, there's some bad things, and as we'll see, there's some ugly things. But most of the people that are associated with this movement are really good people in the sense that they had good intentions, good motives. Wesley had good motives. He wanted to please God. <clears throat> he wanted to live a holy life. So he was at Oxford, and he had a club there called the Holy Club. And he was there with his brother, Charles, the hymn writer, and George Whitfield, the famous evangelist, was a member of the Holy Club, and uh, other people. And they had rules that they lived by. They uh, prayed regularly. They fasted regularly. They read the Bible, the Greek New Testament, regularly. They had a rigorous schedule. And so other students there who weren't very concerned about Christianity derided them and said, they just follow a bunch of methods, rules or methods. And so they derided them and called them Methodists because they had these methods that they followed and so forth. In fact, they made up poems deriding the Methodists. Here's one of them. They rule, by rule they eat, by rule they drink, by rule they do all things but think. <clears throat> so these Methodists were derided, but Wesley adopted that title. He accepted the title of Methodist. And uh, during his lifetime, he remained in the Church of England but these Methodists were a group within the Church of England. They had conferences, and he would preach, go out and preach. Wesley did great things for England. He brought a great spiritual revival, memorial revival. It, it helped England a lot, what he did. But I'm not going to be very kind about what I say about what Wesley taught. I appreciate Wesley as a person and his intentions. 
but I'm very negative on his view on sanctification and holiness. Because as I say here, Wesley came up with a unique idea about spiritual growth and sanctification. The Reformation had been gone on for 200 years, but he said, nope, I got a new idea. He came up with what I call here a second transforming work of grace. So we talk about when we're saved, we're born again, we're converted, we're justified. That's a miraculous work of God. We're transformed. And then we have to grow spiritually. Wesley said, no, we don't need that. We can have another miraculous work after salvation that will bring us to a point of instantaneous holiness and perfection. Christian perfection, he calls it. So this second blessing, we call it, the first blessing is conversion, justification. This second blessing, subsequent and after the new birth, is just as powerful and it brings perfect holiness. So Wesley spread these ideas in the Methodist Church. They came to America in the Methodist Church during the 1800s, very powerful. These ideas eventually became part of what's called the holiness movement, and then we'll see other movements. Now, the Methodist Church itself, which is today the United Methodist Church, they eventually gave up on these ideas. The United Methodist Church does not hold to Wesley's views today. But other denominations arose, other groups arose, to incorporate and keep alive Wesley's doctrine, as we'll see. Now, part of this uh, movement of Wesley became, as I said, the holiness movement. If you see that little diagram below there, you'll see I got Wesley, then the holiness movements. And then in England, at the end of the 1800s, there developed a movement from the holiness movement called the Keswick movement. That word is pronounced Keswick, the W is silent. Keswick is a town in England. In the northwest corner of England in the Lake District, there's a place called Keswick. And there were conferences there. And I'm going to be saying a lot about Keswick and Keswick theology because it's an outgrowth of Wesley and the holiness movement and then the Keswick movement. And that's what has greatly affected us to this day. What I'm going to talk about is Keswick theology. Keswick theology has affected evangelicalism especially in the 20th century. It's affected Baptist churches, fundamentalist evangelical churches, some Presbyterian churches, not many Bible churches, many parachurch groups. I mentioned Campus Crusade for Christ and so forth have adopted a form of Wesley's teaching, a form of Wesley's teaching. And this has had a lasting effect on us even today. I say here down in B, you're probably wondering, okay, kind of explain this uh, Keswick movement to me a little bit. I'm not going to go into great detail today. In future weeks, I'm going to explain their theology pretty thoroughly and probably more than you really want to know. <clears throat> but we'll get there eventually. I just say here that uh, this Keswick theology uh, keeps alive these two separate works of grace, salvation and then later a distinct work, the second blessing of sanctification. So you have terms like let go and let God. If you've heard that kind of talk, let go and let God. If you want to be holy, if you want to be right with God, just let go and let God. 
are total, complete surrender. Make Christ Lord of your life. Live as a spiritual Christian rather than a carnal Christian. Live a life of victory over sin. Then you've been exposed to Keswick theology. Now, not all of those terms are necessarily wrong or incorrect, but if you put all that together, as we will, you'll see how they develop into this particular theology. And the key problem is this sharp distinction between initial conversion or justification and a sharp distinction and separation between that and sanctification, spiritual growth. They're separated or divider, divided. The idea is that a person can be justified, saved, converted, but not necessarily sanctified, not necessarily grow spiritually. As I say on the top of page two, this teaching suggests that progress in personal holiness is not necessarily the normal Christian experience, but only comes to those who have a second distinct experience of sanctifying faith. It promises a victorious Christian life over sin solely through an act of faith that leads to total surrender. So you don't have to struggle with sin. You don't have to uh, (laughs) deal with sin in your life, you don't have to, there's, there's no struggle with sin. You just come to a complete surrender in your life at some point later on, and you're instantly holy. Well, that has real problems, as we'll see. And it would be great if it was true. <clears throat> I mentioned J.I. Packer here, uh, Dr. J.I. Packer, because I want to mention a book of his. I don't know if you're familiar with Packer. He's a well-known evangelical theologian. Uh, he's about 90-some years old today. He's written a number of books. He is also an Anglican minister, just like Wesley was. But he's very evangelical, very conservative. Written a number of books. Uh, one of the most famous books is called Knowing God. I just mentioned that because you may have read Knowing God. It's, it's one of the, it's millions of copies that have been sold. <clears throat> but he uh, was studying for the men. He was studying for the men, studying at Oxford University. And when he was at Oxford... 200 years after Wesley, he came under this Keswick teaching. And he was trying to learn how to live for God and how to grow as a Christian. And he found it, this Keswick teaching, very destructive. He says, and I quote here him uh, at the end of that paragraph, number C there, he says, It's not much of a recommendation when all you can say is that this teaching may help you if you do not take its details too seriously. It's utterly damning to have to say, as in this case, I think we must, that if you do take it seriously, it will tend not to help you but to destroy you. That's quite a strong statement. Now, that's from his book, uh, Keep in Step with the Spirit. It's a very good book. And if you want to kind of follow along more in detail of what I'm saying here, you might want to look at that book, Keep in Step with the Spirit. Excellent, but we have some in the Resource Center that are available there. Uh, you can get them online too, but it's a very helpful book on this subject. covers the same kind of ground that I am covering here. <clears throat> One reason I'm interested, as I say in, par- in number D there on page 2, is that I was saved in a church that taught Keswick theology. Um, I never heard the term Keswick. My pastor never mentioned the term, but he taught it. I didn't realize it till later. Now, he's a very good man. He's actually my wife's uncle. He was the man I was saved under, she was saved under. An excellent man. 
but he wasn't well-trained, and he taught this Keswick theology. He was always talking about the higher life, the victorious Christian life, getting to this higher plane of existence. He used a lot of Keswick kind of theology and teaching. I didn't realize it at the time. We used, the Bible we used was the Schofield Reference Bible. And as we'll see, Schofield Reference Bible is full, full of a lot of Keswick teaching also. When I went to Bible college down in Tennessee, it was mostly Keswick theology. Keswick theology was extremely prominent in the 20th century. It's fading quite a bit now. Has been superseded by much better teaching, as I will talk about. But I wanted to become a Christian. I wanted to become a better Christian. I wanted to grow and so forth. And I found, I tried to incorporate this Keswick teaching, this holiness teaching, and I found it very difficult, very frustrating in my own life. Uh, it was very hard to get, that's what I was being taught. There was no internet there. There weren't, there wasn't much, that much, there weren't many, that many books available. There's just a flood of good Christian books on sanctification and holiness now. So you can get all kinds of good information now, but you couldn't back then, and it was a little frustrating. Um, what I'm trying to emphasize here is that the truth of the matter is that when the Reformation came along 500 years ago and the Reformers recovered the truth of the gospel, they recovered the truth about salvation. They recovered the truth about sanctification and spiritual growth. And that was very good truth, and I'm going to refer to that in a moment. It's what we believe here in this church. But then Wesley came along, and he he kind of changed everything. He said, all that's wrong, and we've been affected by that ever since. And that's what we're going to be looking at, the heirs of Wesley's teaching. I say on the top of page 3... Uh, Bill Combs seems to be rather exercised about this whole uh, thing of Keswick theology. And as I said, when I look back on my life, I think I was hindered for many years by what I was taught. I, I didn't really get the truth about the Bible. It took me many years. It was un, I, until I was really teaching in seminary that I really, I think I really got hold of the truth of this. As I say, it's much easier today because there's many, many good books on sanctification and holiness. Now, if you have grown up here at CBC, you've never been exposed to what I'm going to be talking about, Keswick theology, because we don't teach it here at uh, CBC. You've never heard it from Pastor Ken. But if you've been in other churches, then you have heard it and you've been exposed to it, and you'll be familiar when I start talking more about it. <clears throat> Uh, as I say on F here, the subtitle again was The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly. And I want to emphasize that again is that I'm going to be saying some disparaging things about uh, various theologies and various teachings. But the good part is that the people I'm talking about, 99% of them, were very good people. They, were, they had good intentions. Wesley had good intentions. And others had good intentions. I'm, I'm, I'm saying that their teaching is a problem. What they taught was not what the Bible teaches on this subject, and that's the problem. So the good is that people he, who started the holiness movement, the, the Keswick movement, they mostly had good intentions. Uh, the bad is the fact that this teaching is not very helpful in, in actually uh, 
destructive. There is some ugly because there are some ugly episodes, some people who, who sin, and I won't try to dwell on those. Now, before we actually get into, you know, this teaching and what's wrong, because I've been laying out there's a lot wrong here, <clears throat> I thought it would be best if we would sort of define some terms so we're sort of all on the same page. We all know where we're at. And I want to start by just briefly, if I, if I can, defining some terms. Uh, let's talk about the term salvation. We use the term salvation a lot. That's the broadest term we use for all the benefits we have in Christ, for all that Christ has done for us. His God's rescuing us from sin and death with all these benefits we put under the umbrella of salvation. So the word salvation, it's the verb, the noun, is used about 150 times in the New Testament. Now, most commonly, we talk about salvation in the past. We say, I have been saved. Or we say, you were saved back 20 years ago. We talk about it as a past experience. But the New Testament uses it in three senses, past, present, and future. So I noticed there on A, there's the past. You can find verses that say, he has saved us and called us to a holy life. So it's true. Salvation, there's a sense in which some aspects of salvation are past. B, some are present. For the message of the cross, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.18, is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So we are being saved. We have been saved. We are being saved. And there's a future aspect. Since we have now been justified, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath? There's a future aspect to salvation. So I say on page four, we use this term salvation as an umbrella term for all these various aspects of salvation. So if you see the little diagram there, I've got salvation. And then under that, you have things like redemption. That's an aspect of salvation. Sanctification, that's an aspect of salvation. Glorification, election, union with Christ. All these are aspects of the doctrine of salvation. I say in three, some of these are past, like justification, that's past. Those of us who are saved, if we've been saved, we have been justified. That's past, never to be repeated. Some are present. We are being sanctified. There's a present progressive sanctification, and we will be glorified. There's a future aspect. Number four, I want to mention also, because this will become important later on, is that some aspects of salvation are experiential, or you might say experimental, experiential, and some are non-experiential. Now, what do I mean by that? I say experiential, as applied to salvation, refers to an act of God within us. So some of these aspects in that circle up there, God does within us. An experiential, experiential act is one in which the believer is changed in his or her immaterial spirit or soul. For instance, regeneration, being born again, is experiential. Our immaterial part receives spiritual life. We are no longer dead spiritually. So some acts that God does in salvation we experience within us. If we're born again, we receive a new nature, new life. Our immaterial part is changed. 
But some, aspect, some of these aspects are non-experiential. They are acts that God does, I say, with respect to us. Non-experiential acts of salvation do not change us internally in our soul, though they're just as important. They are more judicial, are legal, are positional. For instance, justification is non-experiential. I'm justified. But that's not an internal change in me. That's a legal declaration. That's positional, non-experiential. I'm declared righteous. Strictly a legal declaration. Theologian John Murray, I, I, I mentioned him, he suggests that we might grasp the difference between experiential at the experiential act of regeneration and the non-experiential act of justification with this illustration. He says the distinction is like that of the distinction between the act of a surgeon and the act of a judge. The surgeon, when he removes an inward cancer, does something in us. He does something in us. That's an experiential act. This is not what a judge does. He gives a verdict regarding our judicial status. So when we think of non-experiential, like justification, we're declared righteous. That's what a judge does in the courtroom. But when the judge says to the criminal, you're not guilty, or to the one in charge who's not guilty, whether he says guilty or not guilty, it doesn't affect the person. <laughs> doesn't change the person's character at all, does it? So some acts are experiential, experiential, some are none. And that's going to become important later on. Let's talk about the two things that are important in our study about the holiness movement, the two aspects of salvation. Here's the two that are the most important to us, justification and sanctification. So let's just be sure that we all understand what justification is, and we'll see what sanctification is from the Bible and we can go from there. All right, let's talk about justification. That's a past act, a non-experiential. So I say the word justified, the bottom of page four, is a forensic or legal term with a meaning acquit. It's, normal, it's a normal word to use when the accused is declared not guilty. It means to declare righteous, not to make righteous. It's the opposite of condemn. To condemn does not mean to make wicked but to declare guilty. Similarly, to justify means to declare just. To be justified means to be acquitted by God from all charges that could be brought against the per person because of his sins. So justification is about legal status, not about inner character. Number two, justification, this is according to Wayne Grudem, here's his definition, in his theology book, justification is an instantaneous legal act of God in which he thinks of our, one, thinks of our sins as forgiven and Christ's righteousness as belonging to us and declares us to be righteous in his sight. So there's two aspects to this justification. One is this forgiveness side and one is this imputation of righteousness side. Number three, I'm talking about this negative side. One's aspect is forgiveness of sins. So Romans 4, 5 through, 4, 5 through 8. In Romans 4, if you remember the argument there, Paul has just discussed the doctrine of justification in Romans chapter 3 at the end. 
And now in chapter 4, he wants to illustrate that doctrine with two examples, Abraham and David. And this he's talking about David. David was justified by faith. And here's what he says. However, to the one who does not work but trusts God who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. David says the same thing when he speaks of the blessedness of the one to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord will never count against them. You remember those jokes that we tell about people dying and going to heaven and St. Peter is at the gate? You remember St. Peter and you? And St. Peter says, now, why should I let you, you know, into heaven? So let's imagine Bill Combs dies. He goes to heaven and he's there and he meets St. Peter. And St. Peter says, Bill, why should I let you into heaven? And I say, well, Christ died for my sins and he has down the cross for me and he has forgiven my sins. My sins are forgiven. Well, St. Peter's going to look at me and say, nope, I won't cut it. I won't hack it. I won't do the job. Sorry about that. I say, what? That's because of number four here. The second aspect of our justification is God imputing the perfect righteousness of Christ to us. God imputes, that is, he regards or counts the righteousness of Christ as belonging to us. He credits it to our account. Romans 5.19, for just as through the disobedience of the one man that many were made sinners, so also, that's Adam, so also through the disobedience of the obedience of the one man, Christ, the many will be made righteous. So God justifies us because of Christ, because the righteousness of Christ is imputed or credited to us. So Bill Combs is going to get into heaven because Christ has died for his sins. And God looks at Bill Combs as perfectly righteous in Christ. The righteousness of Christ is credited to him. So the basis of my salvation is not what I do, not my works, what kind of good life I live. God wants that, as we'll see. But the reason I'm in heaven is because fully and completely the work of Christ on my behalf. Now, let's talk about sanctification. We've talked about justification. That's a non-experiential past act of God. Sanctification. Sanctification has actually three aspects to it, a past, present, and future. Now, the basic meaning of the term sanctify is to set apart, to make holy. In sanctification, the believer is set apart from sin, set apart to God. In justification, God declares us righteous. In sanctification, God makes us righteous or holy. So there's a a big difference between justification and sanctification. In sanctification and justification, God declares us righteous. But God can see Bill Combs in two ways. God sees Bill Combs in Christ as perfectly righteous and just, and I'm going to heaven. But I'm here on earth, and God's not satisfied with that. God wants to make Bill Combs righteous in his conduct. He wants to make him holy here and now. He wants to do something about that. And that's called sanctification. So there are these three phases of sanctification. There is something that's already happened, a past phase. That is, I have been sanctified. 
As I say here, the believer is definitely and instantaneously set apart from the dominion of sin. The believer is no longer a slave to sin. So one of the things that happens when we're saved is the power of sin is broken. Before, we were going one direction. Always we were bent towards sin. That's all we could do. But in salvation, when we were converted, God broke that power of sin. We're still sinners, still have a sinful nature, but we're no longer dominated by that sin. Romans chapter 6 and these other verses tell us. The main one we're concerned about is this what's called progressive sanctification, what's going on right now. The believer is progressively set apart from the power and practice of sin. Throughout this life, the believer is progressively becoming holy while sin is being extirpated. That's a big word. Eradicated, extirpated, removed, mitigated, lessened. It's going away. Sanctification is the removal of that depravity, that sin. Paul says it's God's will. You should be sanctified. Paul says don't let sin reign your mortal body. 2 Corinthians 7.1, therefore, since we have these promises, let's purify ourselves. So God wants us to be holy. That's progressive sanctification. And then on page 6, there is future or entire sanctification. So at the rapture or at death, whichever comes first, Bill Combs will be perfectly holy. Now, remember, John Wesley is going to say, you don't have to wait till you die. John Wesley will tell us next week, you can have it now. We'll see how that works out. But I'm saying this perfect sanctification has to wait ultimately to the future, till death or the rapture. The believer is completely sanctified and set apart. No longer, he can no longer possibly sin, set apart from the possibility of sin. We will not be able to sin in heaven or when the rapture takes place. Now, I put a diagram there. There's Grudem's systematic theology. And this is a very correct view of sanctification. This is what was taught by Luther and Calvin and Zingli and John Knox and the Baptists and the Presbyterians and the Congregationalists. Everybody taught this for 200 years. So John Wesley came along and said, nope, that's wrong. But there it is. We have at the bottom, we're slaves to sin. There's the unsaved person. We're unsaved. We're slaves to sin. Then we're converted. We hear the gospel. God does a miraculous work and converts us. We're justified. And he begins the work of sanctification, that middle panel. And it's kind of shown by a crooked line because sanctification is not just straight up. You know how it works. We want to be holy. We have a desire to please God, but sometimes we fall away. Sometimes we fall into grievous sin. And God has to bring us back. We have to repent and come back and follow God again. So it's not a straight line progress. Uh, A famous Christian writer of bygone years, a man by the name of A.W. Tozer, once said, When God declares a man righteous, he instantly sets about to make him righteous. That's what this diagram is showing. When God declares us righteous, he immediately sets out to make us righteous in conduct. The the process of sanctification begins immediately in our lives. We all are familiar with John Newton. John Newton was a famous uh, Anglican 
clergyman, hymn writer, wrote Amazing Grace, you remember. And he said this, he wrote a letter to a Christian friend once, and he said, a Christian is not of, a Christian is not of hasty growth like a mushroom, but rather like the oak. The progress which is hardly perceptible, but in time becomes a great deep-rooted tree. And that's the way sanctification works in our lives. It's slow. It takes time. But hopefully as we look back a year, five years, ten years, we say, you know, I'm not the same person I was. God is working in me, and I now am more concerned about the things of God. I'm not, I'm, I've turned away from sin, many sins in my life. I'm trying to please God. Now, let's talk for a moment here in the final minutes here about the relationship between justification and sanctification. I say, though different and distinguishable, they cannot be separated. Now, Wesley's going to separate them. Holiness movement's going to separate them. Keswick theology is going to separate them. But I'm saying they can't be separated. We're united to Christ. We're in Christ. Union with Christ means we're in Christ. And out of that comes justification and sanctification. And just like the chart shows, they are not to be separated. I mentioned on page 7, progressive sanctification always follows justification. Sanctification is not automatic. It doesn't happen automatically. It requires our, our responsible participation. We have to do things. We have to do things. There are things we have to do to be sanctified. We have to obey God. We'll talk about those in one session. It requires our participation. Sanctification is not automatic, but it's inevitable. It's going to happen. There's no such thing as a Christian who is justified that is not also being sanctified. We had this verse this morning. Being confident of this, that he who has begun a good work in you, justification, will carry it on to completion, sanctification, until the day of Jesus Christ. So this relationship between justification and sanctification is at the heart of this whole discussion. The holiness movement, Wesley, Keswick, everything that's born out of that, they have a total disjunction between justification and sanctification. You're justified over here, but you may not be sanctified. It may not begin, but if it does begin, if you do the right thing, it can be a kind of perfectionism, a kind of perfect sanctification, as we'll see. Now, we want to look at the history of this, and uh, unfortunately, I'm going to make you go way back to the Protestant Reformation again, because what I want to show here is that the Protestant Reformation was an amazing thing. I was listening to... uh, I was listening to a fellow talk about the American Revolution, and he was talking to a historian about this. And it's amazing when you think about the people that God raised up, Washington and Jefferson and Madison and Hamilton and Adams and Franklin, these kinds of people. And where do you get these kinds of geniuses? Well, the historian said, it just must be God's providence, you know, it's just at certain times. That's what happened in the Reformation. God brought about some tremendous people who recovered the doctrine of salvation and set it down very clearly. So I want to talk about that for a moment. It begins 499 years ago. 
1517, as you may know, with a Roman Catholic priest, a monk by the name of Martin Luther. Luther was studying the scripture. He was a Roman Catholic, teaching in a Roman Catholic school in Germany. He was studying scripture, and he began to see the truth of justification by faith alone, which is contrary to what the Roman Catholic Church believes. And he posted some questions for discussion on the church door on October the 31st, 1517. Next year we'll celebrate the 500th anniversary of the start of the Reformation. He posted these 95 theses for discussion, and this started the Reformation. He eventually broke away from the Roman Catholic Church. He was followed in Europe by other men, as I mentioned, like Calvin, Knox, Wingley. In the 16th century, in the 1500s, these men recovered the doctrine of salvation, and they began to set down the truths of Scripture into confessions, doctrinal statements. We have a doctrinal statement in our church. In fact, you, when you join this church, you sign that you agree with it, you know, because you hope you read it. And <laughs> but you have, we have a doctrinal statement in this church. It's a confession, and you're supposed to agree with it. Well, they came up with various confessions. The most famous one of these was called the Westminster Confession of Faith, 1646. This is a brilliant confession of faith. Now, Baptists came along. They sort of modified it because Baptists believed in baptism by immersion rather than infant baptism and made a few changes. They produced the Second London Confession of, Confession of 1689. This was slightly modified by the Philadelphia Baptist Confession of 1742. And that's the confession that really uh, Baptists in America used. After the Revolutionary War, this was their doctrinal statement. For the founding of almost all the Baptist churches in America, used this Second London Baptist Confession. Now, the reason I, I want to uh, mention is because on page 8, I want to just mention what they say about sanctification because I'm trying to tell you that the Reformation recovered the truth of sanctification. They, recruit, they, they recovered the truth. And what they say here is what we believe in this church and what most people believe. Notice verse. Notice number one at the top of page eight. Those who are united to Christ, effectually called and regenerated, having had a new heart and a new spirit created in them through the virtue of Christ's death and resurrection, are then further sanctified, this is progressive sanctification, in a very real and personal way. Because of the virtue of Christ's death and resurrection and his word and spirit dwelling in them, the dominion of the whole body of sin is destroyed. The different lusts of the body of sin are increasingly weakened and mortified, and Christ's people are increasingly quickened and strengthened in all saving graces to practice all true holiness without which no man shall see God, see the Lord. Number two, this sanctification extends through the whole person, yet it remains imperfect in this life. Some remnants of corruption live on in every part, and from them arises a continuous war between irreconcilable parties, the flesh lusting against the spirit, the spirit against the flesh. If you're a Christian, you know that. There's a conflict going on within us. We battle sin. Three, in this war, although the remaining corruption for a time may greatly prevail, yet through the continual supply of the strength of the sanctifying spirit of Christ, the regenerate part overcomes. And so the saints grow in grace, perfecting holiness in the fear of God, pressing after a heavenly life and evangelical obedience to all the commands in which Christ as head and king in his word has prescribed. And that chart by Grudem is reflecting exactly what that's saying. Now, let me just close with several points here. 
just emphasize what the confession says. Sanctification one begins at the moment of conversion with the creation of a new heart and a new spirit. Two, the essence of this initial past sanctification is the dominion of the whole body of sin is destroyed. So what happens when we're saved? The power of the dominion of sin is broken. We're no longer slaves to sin. We're still sinners. We have a sinful nature, but we're not slaves to sin. We'll talk more about that later. Three, the further or present sanctification is a process in which the different lusts of the body of sin are increasingly weakened and mortified, put to death. And believers are increasingly quickened and strengthened in all saving practices. Four, present sanctification means that the sinful tendencies in the believer are gradually being mitigated. Different lusts of the body of sin are increasingly weakened and righteous tendencies are being strengthened so that the regenerate part gradually overcomes. Sanctification, number five, remains imperfect in this life. So within all believers, there arises a continuous war between irreconcilable parties, the flesh lusting against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. Sanctification is not automatic in this life, but it's inevitable since although the remaining corruption for a time may greatly prevail, yet through the continual supply of the strength from the sanctifying spirit of Christ, the regenerate part overcomes. This was the commonly view common view of sanctification. It's what we teach in this church. It was the common view for 200 years until John Wesley came along and said, no, nope, that's not it. There is no, you don't have to have this struggle with sin. By a simple act of faith, you can be perfected in your sanctification. You can be perfect in holiness. And that has tremendous consequences down through the years. And we'll talk about that next time. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time together. Thank you, Father, for the teaching of Scripture on this important doctrine. Pray you'll give us understanding so that this might be incorporated into our own lives and cause us to make progress in our own sanctification. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.